Hello, and welcome back to our final episode discussing Dostoevsky and the Brothers Karamazov. It's been a long run here. I think we did, in fact, get 16 episodes over 16 weeks. And, you know, this basically means it's a lecture, a whole class in its own right. Um, but here we are. We've successfully made it through all of the drama, all of the plot transformations. We've looked at all of the characters in great detail, and while there's still so much that we could end up saying about this book and about the traditions, context, and scholarship surrounding it, I think we have done as good a job as we can, given the time and the circumstances that we have. Along the way, I've discovered a lot more about this book than I knew going into this project, and I hope that you two have learned a lot both about Dostoevsky and about Dostoevsky's values and about the truths that he has to offer to us. Um, today I want to sort of talk about the last part. Look at both the, the matter of this epilogue and the last half of the, the trial, as well as appreciate exactly what Dostoevsky is trying to say now that we can look back at this whole book in its entirety. On the one hand, there's a lot to look at. On the other hand, it is fairly straightforward. I don't think Dostoevsky is adding a whole great deal in these last few chapters. Um, so that should hopefully mean that we'll get a chance to go through this section in some detail, but also spend some time talking about the future of the podcast and what we're going to do later on now that we've completed this particularly ambitious project. Um, and I want to start where we left off last time. Uh, we had talked about the prosecutor's speech and how, despite Ippoli Kirilovich's best efforts and the efforts of all of the sort of investigators, um, really his speech indicates that this whole legal process is very hit or miss. Um, that they did in fact get a lot of what is true about the case, but they did in fact miss a lot of the really important details. And while Ippoli Kirilovich is sort of priding himself on his expert knowledge of psychology, he seems to be missing a lot of what is actually going on in Dimitri's mind. And it's interesting that we ended with that sort of discussion, because that is exactly what our defense attorney, Fedukovich, is very keen to sort of point at and tear apart uh, here in his speech. Notice that the two, uh, Ippoli Kirilovich, the prosecutor, and Fedukovich, the defense attorney, have a very different approach to their speeches and to their approach towards the trial in general. Remember that Fedukovich is the expert attorney. He's here from Moscow at Kat Katerina Ivanovna's request. Um, everybody expects him to basically demolish Ippoli Kirilovich, and Ippoli Kirilovich is like shaking his boots for this guy. Um, and we notice that he is remarkably calm and restrained during his speech. Dostoevsky spends a lot of time describing his behavior here and how masterfully he both comports himself and uh, treats and uh, interacts with the, the crowd and the jury. Um, but notice the, the substance of his speech really isn't all that deep. On the one hand, we start with this speech about the stick with two ends. And he very much discredits Ippolit Kirillovich and his very psychological approach to understanding Mitya and, and the, the circumstances surrounding the trial. Um, he talks specifically about how it doesn't make sense that Dmitri somehow has the foresight to, um, to check on, on Grigory 
the 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 you know servant who he's beaten with the pestle, but at the same time, like tore apart the envelope and threw it there for all to see. Was it premeditated? Like, did he grab the pestle because he was planning on it, or did he in fact grab it in a moment of passion? What Vetchukovich is sort of pointing out here, and it's something that Dostoevsky and honestly many other thinkers in the late 19th and early 20th centuries are sort of addressing, now that this sort of psychological approach and psychological testimony in these trials is becoming commonplace, is that it really does cut both ways. It is like a stick with two ends, as the defense attorney sort of witlessly or shall we say, cleverly, witlessly presents it. Um, I was literally just talking about the same matter and surprisingly similar language in Chesterton's Man Alive with my students just yesterday. Uh, we were talking about Chesterton's Man Alive, and Chesterton specifically has this moment where the, the defense attorney for Innocent Smith, um, Mr. Moon, immediately starts attacking the supposed prosecutor by saying, you can't have it both ways. You can't accuse poor innocent Smith of being insane because he likes lots of different women and then immediately turn around and say that he's insane for liking only one kind of woman. Um, this psychological testimony has no substance to it. And increasingly, writers, scholars, people of a particularly logical bent who aren't caught up in the same sort of Herzenstube nonsense that we saw from the doctors, you know, debating whether he should be looking to the left or looking to the right or whether he was sane or whether he was insane. You know, Dostoevsky is very much pointing out that they are all ridiculous, that none of this really holds any water. But at the same time as Fedukovich is presenting this sort of critique, this skeptical approach toward this psychological account, Fedukovich's whole plan here seems to be the same that we've seen throughout the trial, namely undermining the authority, undermining the, uh, the trust that the jury and the audience has in each of the witnesses. Just as he systematically sort of besmirched the reputation of every witness to come to the stand, you know, saying that Grigory was drunk or that Rakuten was profiteering or that, you know, even um, Bor or Boris or, uh, Trofimovich, the, the innkeeper, was, you know, greedy. Um, in the same way here, he's saying... I do not need to prove that Smerdyakov did the deed. I do not need to prove that Dmitri did not. All I need to do is shed enough doubt that all of you are now questioning it. Um, so therein lies the stick with two ends. All of your psychological testimony, all of your expert opinions, all of your testimonies about this person's character is probably rooted in your own personal bias. The fact that you all already disliked Dmitri. Um, and that bias is very clear here. Um, we see a lot of the characters have beef with Dmitri for one reason or another. Uh, Fedukovich is not wrong in this description. And we even get a description from Dostoevsky and the narrator specifically telling us about how Dmitri used to visit Ippoli Kirillovich, and Ippoli Kirillovich was kind of grumpy about it because his wife liked Dmitri better than he did, and he always sort of felt jealous and suspicious of him. So this whole perspective, this whole attitude, the authority with which these, you know, supposed authorities, these police uh, representatives and prosecutors and so on and so forth, all of the knowledge that they propose to have about this trial is very bankrupt that Dukovich is pointing out. All of the evidences that have been claimed are flimsy at best. But at the same time as Fetukovich goes about sort of undermining all of these psychological 
uh, details and undermining even the evidences that we find, notice the crux of his argument here, the actual meat underlying what he has to say, un it very much stands in contradiction with himself. On the one hand, we have two chapters of him saying that Dmitri is innocent. We have him saying that Smerdyakov seems to be the more likely candidate for the murder, and indeed all of the evidence that disqualifies Smerdyakov is just as questionable as all of the evidence that seems to damn Dmitri. But for all that he seems to be pushing the information, or pushing this evidence onto Smerdyakov, as much as he seems to be exonerating Dmitri with his testimony, and as much as he emphasizes in his speech that he believes in his heart of hearts that Dmitri is innocent, the crux of his argument in this chapter on the, an adulterer of thought is that even if Dmitri is guilty, you should let him go. As... Dostoevsky was obviously very preoccupied with trials. We've talked about this before, and I mentioned last time um, that Dostoevsky in his writer's diary, especially in the May 1876 edition, when he was looking at, surprisingly, the very same trial he makes mention of here, um, the actress who, you know, cut, cut her husband's throat or something. Um, Dostoevsky is very attentive to the fact that the Russian legal system at this point can be motivated by mercy and a sort of will to see the, the suspect repent over and above the actual guilt or innocence of this person. And notice that Fedjukovic is playing to that interpretation. He questions Fyodor... Uh, Fyodor Karamazov's authority as a father questions that we call this a patricide in this case, that Dmitri is in fact guilty of murdering his father when his father was never a father to him. The, what our defense attorney seems to be suggesting here is that Dmitri is technically guilty of murdering Fyodor Karamazov, but we should not fault him for it. He it remains a good man nonetheless. We would have done the same in his circumstances. And I want to specifically emphasize the why of this, the, the approach that he has here, and the, the means by which he makes this argument. Because again, notice the chapter title here, An Adulterer of Thought. As much as you know, we might be led to think that Fetyukovich, as the defense attorney representing an innocent man, a man who we know is innocent based on what we've read in the book, should be you know a hero in this story. Notice that Dostoevsky makes Fetyukovich out to be, if anything, a more despicable person than Ippoli Kirillovich. Like Ippoli Kirillovich is just trying to make his case, and Dostoevsky shows a certain amount of sympathy in the way that he presents Ippoli Kirillovich, and the way that he describes Ippoli Kirillovich, and what Ippoli Kirillovich is trying to accomplish here. But at the same time, here's Fetyukovich, and we get very little sympathy from Dostoevsky on this front. We do not see his humanity the same way that we see it with Ippoli Kirillovich. But more importantly, the fact that Fetyukovich is willing to excuse the crime of murder on the grounds that it is somehow psychologically understandable, we should note that as much as this sounds, you know, humane and compassionate in Dostoevsky's own particular vein of being humane and compassionate, notice that it is very much at odds with everything that Dostoevsky has been telling us thematically and everything that Dmitri himself feels. 
as much as we should definitely say, yeah, we can understand Dmitry Karamazov, his hatred for his father, the anger that he feels towards him. As much as we might, like the audience, be inspired to like jump up and applaud this talented orator telling us about how really Dmitry is a noble soul wronged by you know all of his childhood being uh, being corrupted by this father figure. As much as this seems to be the a sort of correct attitude. Notice that it is, again, at odds with Dostoevsky's emphasis and insistence that Dmitri is, in fact, guilty. That even if Dmitri isn't guilty of killing his father, Dmitri feels the guilt of his anger against his father, and that Dmitri needs to repent on account of this. What Fetyukovich is arguing is the exact opposite of the circumstances that Dmitri is, in fact, finding himself in where Dmitri is guiltless of his father's murder, but guilty of hating his father, Fedyukovich says that Dmitri is guilty of killing his father, but guiltless of hating him. That he committed the murder without any forethought, without any anticipation. That he killed him almost on accident. That the pestle lunged forward, and if it wasn't even in his hand, then the father wouldn't even be dead, and there wouldn't even be a crime to report. That's despicable as far as Dostoevsky is concerned. He would rather see Dmitri, in fact, murder his father than get off scot-free according to some nonsensical reinterpretation of biblical truth, the sort of perversion that this adulterer of thought commits here, because that's at least true. Like, notice the way that... Uh, that uh, Fedukovich makes his case here, the way that he ultimately refers to Christianity and to the deep truths of the universe here. Like, I'm not going to read the entire passage because it's enormous. Um, but let's look up here at uh, the very top of page 744 in this chapter, An Adulterer of Thought. Um, we get this... First, we notice that Fetukovich quotes the Bible, or rather misquotes the Bible fairly frequently throughout this passage. Um, remember, in the Adulterer of Thought chapter, it's prefaced by saying that he's changed. Like here, Fetukovich has been presenting this account of events that is out of line with Ippoli Kirillovich's account that puts the guilt on Smerdyakov rather than Dmitri. And in this, he's very professional. He's very distant from the case. But now he's switched gears. Now he transforms himself. And now he is behaving especially sincerely, or so it seems to everybody in the audience. But here we get this description. We'll start at the bottom of page 743 and work our way there. Oh, do not believe her. No, my client is not a monster, as she called him, referring to Katerina Ivanovna. The crucified lover of mankind, as he was going to his cross, said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep, so that not one will be destroyed. Let us, too, not destroy a human soul. What is a father, I was asking just now, and exclaimed that it is a great word, a precious appellation. But, gentlemen of the jury, one must treat words honestly, and I shall allow myself to name a thing by the proper word, the proper appellation. Such a father as the murdered old Karamazov cannot and does not deserve to be called a father. Love for a father that is not justified by the father is an absurdity, an impossibility. Love cannot be created out of nothing. Only God creates out of nothing. Fathers, provoke not your children, writes the apostle. 
from a heart aflame with love. I quote these holy words now not for the sake of my client, but as a remember to all fathers. Who has empowered me to teach fathers? No one. But as a man and as a citizen, I call out, Vivus Voco! We are not long on this earth. We do many evil deeds and say many evil words, and therefore let us all seize the favorable moment of our being together in order to say a good word to each other as well. And so I do. While I am in this place, I make the best of my moment. Not in vain is this tribute given us by a higher will. From here we can be heard by the whole of Russia. I speak not only to fathers here, but to all fathers I cried out. Fathers, provoke not your children. Let us first fulfill Christ's commandment ourselves, and only then let us expect the same of our children. Otherwise we are not fathers, but enemies of our children. And they are not our children, but our enemies. And we ourselves have made them our enemies. With what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you. It is not I who say this, it is the gospel precept. Measure with the same measure as it is measured to you. How can we blame our children if they measure to us with our own measure? Notice, there's something off about the way that Fetukovich goes about his biblical quotes here. Like, just from that very first one that we saw, right after he had described how Katya had, you know, potentially besmirched his client's opinion and that, you know, he's not a monster as she called him. The quote that he presents here, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd, shepherd giveth his life for the sheep, so that not one will be destroyed. Notice we are ultimately combining two verses here. It's true that there is this passage in John about Jesus being the good shepherd, and the good shepherd is a good shepherd because he is willing to go to great lengths for the lives of his sheep. But that last addition here, so that not one will be destroyed, that's, that's not the guarantee. And the theological consequences of that theological addition are dramatic here. Notice, especially towards the end of this, when, when everybody sort of gets riled up and they're all talking about the two speeches, um, Ippoli Kirillovich is himself personally very offended that Jesus is referred to as the crucified lover of mankind here. Notice what Fedukovich is doing. He is making Christ out to be a omnibenevolent, omnimerciful being who forgives everyone without any qualifications or questions, and that's the end of the story. But that's not how Christianity works. And they're right to call him out on this, those who do have the guts and do have the you know, self-awareness to call him out on this. What Fetukovich is preaching here is not the gospel, but a very palatable version of the gospel popular in liberal circles at this particular point in time. They are presenting Jesus out as though he never does judge, even though he is, as the Bible tells us, a prosecutor, a actual judge. He is the defender of our iniquity, or he is the defender before God, but he does not overlook, he does not defend our iniquities. He calls us out and presents the truth. He dies for them in our stead. But that requires repentance. It requires an acknowledgement of our guilt. Further, when we get to that passage, fathers, provoke not your children, notice what Fedukovich is doing here. Again, he's right to quote the scripture here. The scripture is correct. Fyodor Karamazov was in fact a terrible father and should be held accountable for it, or was held accountable for it, the cosmic order of things. 
But he's saying that because of the guilt of the father, the son is innocent, and that does not follow. Dostoevsky has been emphasizing throughout this whole book the universal quality of guilt. Zosima has emphasized this, Alyosha has emphasized this, Dmitri has realized this about himself, and most of the characters who have in, ha in fact matured and developed over the course of this book do so by acknowledgement and admission of their universal guilt. What Fetyukovich is presenting to us is a world without guilt, a world where these things just happen and we should accept them as they happen. We should recognize that there is no criminal intention here and that the patricidal actions of Dmitri are to be forgiven and understood because can we really say that he is guilty of murdering his father when his father was such a terrible person? What Fedjukovich is doing is defanging the gospel, taking out what is important and judgmental about the gospel. He's taking out the reason why Christ died and instead just giving us Christ's death all by itself. And that last quote that we are discussing here, with what measure ye meet it shall be measured to you, notice he's very much perverting that text here. The measure, the, the original prescription in the gospel is to note that you are guilty before God and that you are receiving mercy before God and therefore you should be merciful to others knowing full well that you could have definitely been treated worse. The measure you meet is something that you should be aware of. You should not judge others lest you yourself be judged. Um, and for those of you who demand acceptance, behavior, uh, a certain fairness in your treatment with others, you will be treated fairly in your own right. But notice what he's saying here with his example of the, the girl in Finland who is, you know, murdering her babies right out of the womb. Yeah, he's very much emphasizing that we need to not judge at all. And that this whole measuring and meeting and stuff is somehow not possible? See, what the gospel is telling us about this business of measuring and meeting and judging is that judgment is going to be equitable. When we judge, we are judged. And we will be, in fact, judged. It is through our repentance, it is through our practice of mercy that we do this. So if this is the case, then we need to recognize Dimitri is guilty and make our decision with that assumption in mind. We can't just excuse him. We can't just say, oh, his father was terrible. Should we really judge him for how awful his father was, given the fact that, you know, we too are awful and terrible fathers and mothers to our children? Whatever Fetyukovich is arguing here, notice this whole gospel quoting business is very much put on for him. It is not something he truly believes in. It's something that he is willfully and sort of profitably distorting for the sake of his argument. He is quoting the gospel not because he believes in the gospel, but because he is in some backwater, backwoodsy province of Russia where a whole bunch of peasants are sitting on trial, and he knows that if he quotes the gospel at them, he's going to sound super important, and that they will take that seriously. 
he assumes their ignorance, their stupidity, and panders to it in the hope that it will cause them to change their minds and think in his favor. And notice how well it works. How everybody in the audience starts cheering and clapping, and everybody apparently agrees with his, you know, very moderate, very liberal outlook on crime and, and you know, whether or not we can hold people accountable, hold them guilty for committing crimes. That's something perverse as far as Dostoevsky is showing us. Remember that this chapter, this whole book, is called A Judicial Error. And as much as there are... As much as this could very well be referring to the fact that, you know, Dmitri is in fact condemned for a crime he did not commit, notice that every step of this process is error after error after error. That yes, the defense attorney is absolutely right to question Ippoli Kirillovich's method, his psychological insights, just as we were right to see the two doctors debating about Dmitri's behavior as ridiculous and absurd. But at the same time, the defense attorney is committing just another different kind of error, and in fact an even more terrifying one. He is saying that justice is impossible, and that we should not aspire to it. He is basically claiming that the entire Bible is a refutation of justice, when in fact it is an effort to portray to us exactly how that justice has been mitigated for us. The justice doesn't go away. You know, not a jot nor tittle passes until the end of the world, as Jesus tells us. The laws, the commandments, are still in force. The mercy that we receive is an outlier in that respect. It is something supernatural, something beyond our comprehension and unusual to the point of unbelievable. What Fedyukovich is instead saying here is that we need to make that sacrifice, make that mercy universal. We need to dismiss justice and law altogether here, which is not what the Bible is preaching. The justice is harsh, and so Jesus pays the price. The mercy that we receive is because of that sacrifice, and we stand guilty before Jesus for that reason, even as our sins are forgiven. We recognize that he dies for us, and without that sacrifice, Without that assumption that we were in fact guilty, that sacrifice would be meaningless. What Fedyukovich is saying is, Dmitri isn't guilty and therefore doesn't need a sacrifice and therefore doesn't require mercy. What he requires is a justice that is not justice. A mercy from the peasants for a crime that he did in fact commit. And notice how much this offends Dmitri especially. Like, notice on this, you know, as this trial is, is going on and after the speeches are presented, we get an opportunity. First, Ippoli Kirillovich gets to rebut Fetyukovich's speech, where he gets very upset about it for, again, good reason, as we said. But notice Dmitri's response as well. This is on page 750. What can I say, gentlemen of the jury? My judgment has come. I feel the right hand of God upon me the end of the erring man. But I tell you as if I were confessing to God, no, of my father's blood I am not guilty. For the last time I repeat, I did not kill him. I erred, but I loved the good. Every moment I longed to reform, yet I lived like a wild beast. My thanks to the prosecutor, he said much about me that I did not know, but it is not true that I killed my father. The prosecutor is mistaken. 
My thanks also to the defense attorney. I wept listening to him, but it is not true that I killed my father. There was no need even to suppose it. And don't believe the doctors. I'm entirely in my right mind. Only my soul is heavy. If you spare me, if you let me go, I will pray for you. I will become better. I give you my word. I give it before God. And if you condemn me, I will break the sword over my head myself and kiss the broken pieces. But spare me. Do not deprive me of my God. I know myself. I will murmur. My soul is heavy, gentlemen. Spare me. Notice that Dimitri is kind of broken by this process. And again, for good reason. Notice that Dimitri knows that, he's guilt, that he is guiltless of his father's murder. You know, as he's told Alyosha, as his closest and most intimate friends and relations have know about him. And yet, neither the prosecutor nor the defense attorney accept the possibility of his innocence. Like, as much as Fetukovich started by saying, you know, I believe in my heart of hearts that, this def that the defendant is guiltless, he then immediately turns it around and says, no, he killed his father, but it wasn't a murder, and it wasn't his father. And Dimitri is heartbroken by this. Like, even the guy who's being paid to defend him doesn't believe that he is innocent. And in fact, goes on to the stand and says as much to everyone around him, he killed his father, but we shouldn't blame him for it. To Dimitri, this is horrifying. Monstrous. Like, he is standing in this witness stand, broken. And notice what he says. He's willing to accept the you know, being acquitted, and he will pray for each person who acquits him every day of his life, if in fact they do this. But if in fact they condemn him, he will break the sword over his own head. He will happily accept that punishment and go to it gladly. What Dimitri is saying here is that he deserves both. On the one hand, he isn't guilty of his father's blood, and indeed his hands are, are free, and he therefore should be acquitted if justice is to prevail here. But he also recognizes, on a higher level, he is guilty of, his, of hating his father, of doing a horrible thing. And therefore, while the punishment isn't fit to the crime, and while the punishment isn't given for the correct crime, he recognizes that it can absolutely stand for his crime that he deserves it nonetheless. Now, we should take this with a grain of salt, given that not, you know, a few pages after this, Dmitri admits that he is not ready for this, and he and Ivan and Katya and Grushenka and Alyosha are all apparently planning for him to escape to America. Uh, but at the same time, we need to recognize, to some degree, Dmitri is already being punished. He already feels that guilt. That hasn't changed, and no you know, conviction or acquittal is going to change that. And in fact, that's what he's most concerned about when he's talking to Alyosha later. He's worried that the new man inside of him, the man who feels this guilt, who suddenly is very conscious and aware of his actions, is going to be snuffed out by going to there, as he puts it, by going to Siberia, by, you know, suffering under the, you know, potential cruelties of taskmasters and you know, the fact that he and his proud heart are not going to be able to bear the insults of either the masters or the other prisoners. The fact is, Dimitri is worried that the new man in him is going to get killed, um, that his pride is going to be too quickly insulted. And Alyosha agrees with him. Alyosha specifically says, yeah, you're not ready for that burden. 
And as unfair and as inappropriate and as seemingly unchristian as it may be, Alyosha is willing to help. Alyosha is ultimately says, you know, yeah, it's probably wrong to do it, but I accept responsibility to help you escape because you are not ready for it, because you need this little bit of mercy in order to properly go about your life and feel the guilt that you actually do, in fact, feel. Now, obviously, Dimitri is, in fact, condemned. But notice the situation here. Again, we get another passage where there are multiple groups around the around the courtroom, we're all debating his fate. And notice, especially after Fetyukovich's speech, basically everyone is sure that he's going to get acquitted. They are positive that Fetyukovich, with his incredible erudition, has changed the minds of the peasants and that his you know, talk about the gospel has ultimately converted them all. And yet they're all wrong. And I want to emphasize this from Dostoevsky's perspective here, this idea that the peasants did in fact stand up for themselves. Remember, Fetyukovich is distorting the gospel. He is wrecking it. He is absolutely messing with its original meaning for the sake of his own, you know, his own profit and his own success in this situation. And doing so probably because he assumes that he can pull one over on a bunch of stupid, ignorant peasants, so he is talking down to them in some sense. Notice that Dostoevsky, to some degree, is saying that justice is done here. Fetyukovich's bullshit doesn't fly. They call him out on it. They are absolutely not impressed with his fancy distortions of the gospel, with his butchering of New Testament truth. The peasants stand up for real virtue, for justice. If anything, they may have been offended by Fetyukovich's attempt to snow them with fancy language and some sort of quasi-biblical explanation. So when, in fact, they convict Dmitri, as much as it is the wrong, move, the wrong move on their part, as much as Dmitri is, in fact, innocent, they are, in fact, doing justice here. They're doing their job correctly. The peasants stand up for themselves, and they do, in fact, serve justice here. A justice that is sort of tangential to everything that has gone on in this trial. You know, as much as the ladies have been sure that Dimitri was going to get acquitted from the moment they walked into the courtroom because he's so handsome and he's so good-looking, as much as the men have all been grumpy and biased against him because of the various problems that he's caused in town and the people that he's hurt and insulted, as much as all of that is at stake here, the peasants, at the end of the day, do the right thing. They look at the evidence, which is pretty overwhelming, and they ultimately condemn this man who, by all accounts, seems to be guilty of a crime. They are not impressed by all of the foolish nonsense that Fetyukovich spouts, all of his eloquence and erudition. They are not, you know, terribly swayed one way or the other by Dmitri's good looks or by his past behavior. We admittedly don't get to see what goes through the mind of our peasants, the jury. Like, it's kind of interesting that Dostoevsky presents all of the scuttlebutt in the courtroom, all of the, you know, people in the, of the public who have come there, bought their tickets, and are now debating the potential outcome of the trial, while not giving us a glimpse of what happened behind closed doors in the jury chamber. I find it striking that that's the case, that he doesn't give us an explanation. But the result, the effect on us, the reader, is pretty, pretty straightforward. A huge violation of justice had occurred here with Fetyukovich's approach and his speech, 
and the peasants resisted it. Despite the fact that they ultimately made the wrong call, they ultimately did condemn an innocent man, you know, accuse Dimitri of a murder he did not commit, it doesn't change the fact that they did a better job than they would have if they had let him off because, as Fetyukovich would have said, there is no guilt, there is no crime, there is no murder, and definitely no patricide. The peasants stand up for truth, in theory, but miss the actual truth of the matter. Um, and there's something interesting about this, I think. Dostoevsky could have made this trial go either way. You know, the evidence is compelling enough to warrant a guilty verdict, but it is also distorted enough and broken enough that an innocent verdict is would be plausible. The fact that Dostoevsky chooses to condemn Dmitri, especially after presenting this very much farce of a trial, after emphasizing all of the human elements here, and after stressing, on the one hand, that all of this is distorted by all of these perspectives and psychologies and attitudes and, you know, personal vendettas or personal, uh, personal desires, on the other hand, Dostoevsky does seem to insist that it needs to be done. It is still justice. As much as we questioned the validity of the Russian legal system in the last lecture, we should note that Fetyukovich is effectively doing the greatest questioning of all, and Dostoevsky very much makes him out to be a villain here. Um, justice is a good thing for Dostoevsky. The fact that the trial system can't quite get to it most of the time is unfortunate, but not necessarily a evidence that it needs to be dissolved or done away with. Better to have bad trials than no trials, Dostoevsky would likely be saying here, um, in so much as we can interpret this whole giant chapter full of craziness as, you know, having some sort of polemical agenda on Dostoevsky's part. So as much as the trial is a weird scene, I think that is overall the message here. Um, Dostoevsky is emphasizing the virtue of justice, even as he's showing it very much damaged and distorted by the just normal human behavior um, of all of the people involved. Witnesses, suspects, attorneys, judge, crowd, you name it. So let's turn our attention instead to the epilogue. And I don't want to do what I've done in the past, where we like systematically run through each of the characters. There are, in fact, a lot of characters to sort of touch on here, um, and I do want to sort of at least talk about most of them, uh, but I also don't want to get into the deep psychology or the deep sort of changes that take place here, because there isn't that much. On the one hand, we see Katerina Ivanovna again, and this is Katerina Ivanovna after her outburst in the trial, after she has very much changed her whole outlook. And we see here, too, that she's apparently shacking up with Ivan at this point, or at least, you know, Ivan is staying in her home and she is taking care of him. Presumably they are not engaged in any illicit sexual relations. Um, but notice that she does so, and the narrator even remarks that this is despite the fact that she is likely going to be judged for it. Katerina Ivanovna has kind of given up on public opinion. She now only cares about her love for Ivan. And we see 
that she is, in fact, taken care of by them. She is now responsible for taking over uh, the the escape plan for Dimitri, despite, since Ivan is out of commission, he's apparently suffering another attack of brain fever in the few days since the, the trial took place. But notice, too, that Katerina Ivanovna, she is still pretty unpredictable here. Um, as much as we sort of concluded that she must be in love with Ivan in order for her to have turned on Dimitri so much, we also see a scene where she and Dimitri profess their love for each other after she professes her love for Ivan, though admittedly the narrator tells us that they could very well just be lying. They're just passionately moved towards one another in this way. Katrina Ivanovna has been a real hard character to pin down throughout this whole novel, and she doesn't get any easier here at the outset. We still see her both in love with Dmitri and Ivan, it seems. We still see her being proud and jealous of Grushenka. If, in fact, she has performed that repentance, if she has, in fact, fallen to the ground and so, so as to give forth fruit, it's not complete yet. She's working on it. She still remains a work in progress. Likewise, notice we don't get to see Ivan at all in the epilogue, which, you know... As I've been stressing throughout this lecture series, Ivan is not the hero of the Brothers Karamazov. There's probably no greater evidence than this. You know, the last time we get to hear from Ivan is when he, you know, has his catastrophic outburst at the, at the trial. And at that point, everybody just assumes he's insane and doesn't really have anything more to say about it. His big climactic moment was in his bedroom with the devil, with, and then with Alyosha shortly afterwards. Ivan still has yet to decide for himself. In fact, decision may not even be the right way of putting it. Ivan has still yet to figure out how to reconcile his insane philosophy with his actual sense of conscience and virtue. If he successfully does this, we're not going to see it in this novel. It is still an open question. At this point, he's still too sick. He's still insane. He's still lost his mind and leave of his senses. And we can't say if he's in fact going to rationally resolve his concerns one way or the other. If he is going to in fact just dwell in this incompatible philosophical conundrum of his, or if he is going to let go of his ideas and grow into a more mature human being. Uh, we can't see. The closest thing we can see is that he did in fact confess, he did in fact give up uh, give up himself in the hopes of saving Dimitri, and he is in fact moving forward with his plot to uh, help Dimitri escape, which doesn't necessarily give us a definitive answer on the, you know, where is Ivan morally question. He could still be doing this out of his own conscience and still be totally divided on this front. Maybe that's why he is suffering brain fever now, days after the trial has taken place. As for Dmitri and Grushenka, notice Dmitri is still the same guy he's been from the beginning to some degree, or at least since his transformation, since his repentance. He is grumpy about the fact that, you know, he is in fact going to escape. He does recognize, as Alyosha does, that this takes away from his repentance, that this is in fact a, a slight against this new man who he's become. But both Alyosha and Dmitri also acknowledge that he is not prepared for the suffering, the trials that await him uh, in exile in Siberia. What's more, 
This is an act of mercy towards Grushenka as well. Obviously, Grushenka is committed to Dmitri. We see another confrontation between Dmitri, Grushenka and Katya. They're both still very jealous of each other. Um, Grushenka is still very protective of Dmitri, and Kat Katerina Ivanovna still apparently loves Dmitri on some level. So, once again, the women are just irreconcilable here. Um, but we should notice that both of them are prepared. Whatever the future may hold. Dmitri does not look forward to his exile to America, and he actually speaks really disparagingly of the Americans. Like, all Americans are, what, machinists, I think is the, the word that we use here. Um, they're all mechanics. Like, all that America ever cares about is, you know, industry and productivity and stuff, and I find that particularly telling, especially because it is, you know, the 19th century in America, peak industrialism, you know, in the aftermath of the Civil War. Um, yeah, I, I always love to see, like, especially when Russians talk about America, because America and Russia are very much going through a sort of parallel evolution and development in the 19th century. But yeah, I, I love Dmitri sort of getting really grumpy about America and swearing that he's going to, like, spend three years there and then come back to Russia because it's such a terrible place, that darn America. Um... But as much as there's a lot to talk about here, the only the only other one that I really do want to mention is the detail we get about Trifon Borisovich. You know, the innkeeper who's kind of a jerk and who was definitely stealing money from Dmitri the first time that Dmitri came to Makroya. And apparently Trifon Borisovich has his just desserts because now ever since the prosecutor's speech, he's like tearing apart his inn looking for the money that the prosecutor said that Dmitri hid in the inn somewhere. I just love that little detail. Like, there's just a perfect comeuppance for Trifon Borisovich that Dostoevsky has him, like, literally destroying his own inn on the myth that this prosecutor has told him. Like, his greed is literally just eating himself at this point, and, oh, it's perfect. Um, but beyond that, the main thing that I want to talk about with the epilogue is the final chapter, Ilyushka's funeral. Um... And I want to stress, like, we've talked about this before, so we're not going to dwell on it, especially here, why we spend all of this time talking about Ilyusha, talking about Snegiryov. Um, we've talked about this. It is the thematic heart of this book. As much as these are not Karamazovs and the plot is totally just left behind for this final chapter, this is the heart of the story in many ways. Ilyushka and the suffering of Snegiryov in the wake of Dmitri's you know, throwing him out of the tavern, pulling on his whisk-broom beard. These are the real victims here. Uh, people who didn't do anything wrong and are yet hurt by the machinations of all of these passionate rich folks. Um, Dostoevsky usually ends his major novels with a view of peasants. For Dostoevsky, the peasants usually represent a greater truth than the nobility is, is kicking around here. People who suffer are, for Dostoevsky, usually more noble intrinsically than the people who sort of bring their suffering on themselves, as Dmitri and Fyodor and Ivan really do. Um, but we should also look at exactly what is happening here, because there are numerous details that are really important to that thematic understanding that Dostoevsky uh, highlights here. Uh, notice one of the first things that we run into, you know, Alyosha goes to the funeral and he meets all of the boys there, and we get some really interesting, like, 
dialogue from the boys. Um, so notice, like, uh, Kolya Krasotkin asks, asks uh, Alyosha point blank, did Dmitri in fact kill, his, kill their father or not? And Alyosha responds, no, he didn't. The lackey killed him. My brother is innocent, Alyosha replied. And then we, you know, get some dialogue afterwards. That's just what I say, the boy Smurov suddenly cried. Thus he will perish an innocent victim for truth, exclaimed Kolya. But though he perish, he is happy. I am ready to envy him. What do you mean? How can you be? And why? exclaimed the surprised Alyosha. Oh, if only I, too, could someday offer myself as a sacrifice for truth, Kolya said with enthusiasm. But not for such a cause, not with such disgrace, not with such horror, said Alyosha. Of course, I should like to die for all mankind, and as for disgrace, it makes no difference. Let our names perish. I respect your brother. And so do I, another boy, suddenly and quite unexpectedly called out from the crowd, the same boy who had once announced that he knew who had founded Troy, and, just as he had done then, having called it out, he blushed up to his ears like a peony. Notice, Koyakrat Sokken is moved by Dmitri's situation, by the fact that Dmitri is willing to accept punishment for a crime he did not commit. Now, Kolya admittedly dresses it up in his boyish romanticism. You know, he is going to suffer, suffer disgrace for the sake of truth. But he's not wrong here. And it's significant to note that his assumption, his assumption that Dmitri is in fact going to honorably be disgraced, that he will honorably suffer injustice, is in fact exactly what Dostoevsky has promised us would happen. Again, if we take as the fundamental theme of this book, you know, if unless a corn of wheat fall into the ground, it will not produce fruit. Notice, here we see the fruit. Here we see Kolya Krasokin and a bunch of boys moved by Dmitri's sacrifice, promising to model their lives on his. As much as Dmitri never sees any of this, his sacrifice is not in vain, and it will bring forth fruit. It is better that he go and suffer this injustice. It is better that he repent, that he go to Siberia for truth, or at the very least go to America for the sake of truth, than for him to deny this. We see the promise here. Dostoevsky shows us there is a happy ending to all this. These boys are going to go on and be good men, honorable people because they were moved by Alyosha and by Dmitri and by all of these people who let their lives be a sacrifice. If they had not, if they had stood on their pride as Rakuten does, then ultimately everyone will just hate them and they will have accomplished nothing and their lives will ultimately be meaningless. That's what meaning is for Dostoevsky throughout this novel. That's how one's life gets meaning. Now, Notice, that doesn't diminish from the tragedy here. The fact that Ilyushka's death does in fact cause terrible pain. Between the two sections where Alyosha sort of, you know, discusses this matter with the boys, and then later when Alyosha is talking to the boys at the stone, right between this we get an absolutely heartrending account of the actual funeral, and of Snegiryov, you know, absolutely beside himself with grief, fiddling with the candles and carrying his his the flowers back to his mama and you know barely able barely being able to part with his son, barely being willing to let the coffin go into the ground. 
Um, we see just the pain of his circumstances. Snagurov's daughters, you know, pining over Ilyushka as well. The mother who's sort of taken leave of her senses, asking for one of the flowers that Ilyushka is holding, and then collapsing into grief and tears when she realizes what she actually asked. There's just this horrible suffering that is on display here. The sort of horrible suffering that we saw way back when Ivan was talking about rebellion pages and pages and pages ago at the very beginning of this novel and this lecture series. We see, yeah, people are really suffering here because of Dmitri's foolishness, because of his recklessness. You know, Ilyushechka would not have died if it wasn't for the fact that he considered his father so disgraced and alienated his comrades as a consequence, and especially Kolya Krasotkin. He died because Dmitri didn't care, and because Kolya didn't care, and because Smerdyakov didn't care. All of these things added up to his suffering and to his death. But importantly, this too falls into our theme. As much as Ilyushechka's death is a horrible tragedy, brought about by just terrible things that characters have been doing throughout this novel, he too is an inspiration. His death is going to be an important rallying point for all of these boys to remember. Notice at the very end of this book, the last speech that Alyosha delivers, where he is in fact sort of summing up everything that is going on here. We do in fact get to see Alyosha try and put this all together and make sense of this whole wild plot and series of events. Gentlemen, he says, we shall be parting soon. Right now I shall be with my two brothers for a while, one of whom is going into exile and the other is lying near death. But soon I shall leave this town, perhaps for a very long time. And so we shall part, gentlemen. Let us agree here, by Ilyusha's stone, that we will never forget. First, Ilyushechka, and second, one another. And whatever may happen to us later in life, even if we do not meet for twenty years afterwards, let us always remember how we buried the poor boy, whom we once threw stones at, remember, there by the little bridge, and whom afterwards we all came to love so much. He was a nice boy, a kind and brave boy. He felt honor, and his father's bitter offense made him rise up, and so, first of all, let us remember him, gentlemen, all our lives. And even though we may be involved with the most important affairs, achieve distinction, or fall into some great misfortune, all the same, let us never forget how good we once felt here, all together, united by such good and kind feelings as made us, too, for the time that we loved the poor boy, perhaps better than we actually are. My little doves, let me call you that. Little doves, because you are very much like those pretty gray-blue birds, now at this moment as I look at your kind dear faces, my dear children, perhaps you will not understand what I am going to say to you, because I often speak very incomprehensibly, but still you will remember, and some day agree with my words. You must know that there is nothing higher, or stronger, or sounder, or more useful afterwards in life than some good memory, especially a memory from childhood, from the parental home. You hear a lot said about your education, yet some such beautiful sacred memory preserved from childhood is perhaps the best education. If a man stores up many such memories to take into life, then he is saved for his whole life. And even if only one good memory remains with us in our hearts, that alone may serve some day for our salvation. Perhaps we will even become wicked later on, we'll even be unable to resist a bad action, we'll laugh at, at people's tears and at those who say, as Kolya exclaimed today, I want to suffer for all people. Perhaps we will scoff wickedly at such people. And yet no matter how wicked we may be, and God preserve us from it, 
As soon as we remember how we buried Ilyusha, how we loved him in his last days, and how we've been talking just now, so much as friends, so together, by this stone, the most cruel and jeering man among us, if we should become so, will still not dare laugh within himself at how kind and good he was at this present moment. Moreover, perhaps just the, this memory alone will keep him from great evil, and he will think better of it and say, Yes, I was kind, brave, and honest then. Let him laugh to himself. It's no matter. A man often laughs at what is kind and good. It just comes from thoughtlessness. But I assure you, gentlemen, that as soon as he laughs, he will say at once in his heart, No, it's a bad thing for me to laugh, because one should not laugh at that. He goes on after... Kolya's interruption. I am speaking about the worst case if we become bad, Alyosha went on. But why should we become bad, gentlemen? Isn't that true? Let us first of all and before all be kind, then honest, and then let us never forget one another. I say it again. I give you my word, gentlemen, that for my part I will never forget any one of you. Each face that is looking at me now, at this moment, I will remember, be it even after thirty years. Kolya said to Kardashov just now that we supposedly do not care to know of his existence. But how can I forget that Kardashov exists, and that he is no longer blushing now as when he discovered Troy, but is looking at me with his nice, kind, happy eyes? Gentlemen, my dear gentlemen, let us all be as generous and brave as Ilyushechka, as intelligent, brave, and generous as Kolya, who will be much more intelligent as when he grows up a little. And let us be as bashful, but smart and nice as Kardashov. But why am I talking about these two? You are all dear to me, gentlemen. From now on, I shall keep you all in my heart, and I ask you to keep me in your hearts, too. Well, and who has united us in this good, kind feeling which we will remember and intend to remember always, all our lives? Who, if not, Ilyushechka, that good boy, that kind boy, that boy dear to us unto ages of ages? Let us never forget him, and may his memory be eternal and good in our hearts, now and unto ages of ages. Now, Alyosha's actually bringing in a lot of different ideas here and connecting them in this big speech. Notice, first of all, that he's mentioning and stressing that Dmitri had, or rather that they have this moment, this moment of childhood memory, this thing that will remind them of being good and how they're supposed to act towards each other. And he stresses that it only takes one good childhood memory to sort of stick in our minds and make us good going forward. And we should definitely be thinking about Dimitri in the trial, how Herzenstube specifically talked about that one time that he saw Dimitri and gave him a bag of nuts, and both Dimitri and Herzenstube were so moved by this one moment, this passing instant, this one glimmer of goodness in a life characterized by Dimitri's really troubled relationship with his father, that both of them end up breaking down into tears. We've seen this several times over the course of this book. We've recognized numerous occasions where people remember their interactions in childhood and suddenly connect to it. And we should know this, note that this happened in Dostoevsky's own life as well. Dostoevsky blames or cites as his own moment of real conversion when he was in prison, when he was locked behind bars, when he was, you know, at his lowest point. He remembered being treated generously by a peasant in his own father's uh, on his own father's land, and that moment ref 
was reflected to him so strongly that he found that that goodness, the goodness that the peasant had when he comforted little Dostoevsky, in a, you know, out of his fear, the Dostoevsky had come running to him because he was scared of a wolf, and the peasant told him that there's no wolf, and it's okay, and you don't need to be afraid. Dostoevsky is likely remembering his own childhood here remembering his own moment of conversion, remembering that he had gone so far into his liberal anarchist agenda and had totally forgotten his responsibilities to the state and had lost sight of his faith, and yet that one memory stuck in his mind. And Alyosha is promising here that this memory, too, will stick in our minds, that it will steer us right when we go and be terrible people just as Dimitri, just as Ivan, just as Fyodor, all have done. But he also stresses that it is because of Ilyusha's sacrifice that the death of Ilyusha, like the corn of wheat falling to the ground, does in fact bear fruit, brings them together. This memory of a kind, good man is enough for them to remain kind and good, and to inspire them to remain kind and good. And all of this, all of this comes down to this liturgical language here at the end. Let us never forget him, and may his memory be eternal and good in our hearts, now and unto ages of ages. The same liturgical language that would have been said at the actual funeral service just moments ago. And all of this is connected to the place, notice, that Alyosha is delivering the speech at the very stone that Ilyusha and his father Stegryov used to walk to, the place where Snegryov and Ilyusha would have these heart-to-heart -heart conversations, where Ilyusha cried and talked about how awful the world was, and Snegryov was forced to admit that it was, in fact, terrible. The same place where Alyosha offered Snegryov money, and he threw it to the ground, refusing to accept it from Alyosha, because he at least had that much pride left. This stone has been a really important place for Ilyusha, for Snegryov, for Alyosha, and now for all of the boys. And it is, in some degree, representative of the fact that all of them are linking their lives together. We see these definitive moments of decision and uncertainty, these moments where horrible decisions are made or horrible truths realized, is the same place where lasting memories can also be made. Like, Snedryov even says at one point that he wants to bury Ilyusha at this rock, and Alyosha and, like, all of the clergy have to sort of, like, tear him away from this idea. No, it's better that he is actually interred in a church. But for all this, notice that it is ultimately a positive ending, which... I need to emphasize here, because it's one thing that we're not going to appreciate having just read the Brothers Karamazov, but Dostoevsky does not write happy endings. Like, the closest thing to a happy ending before the Brothers Karamazov is probably in Crime and Punishment when uh, Raskolnikov himself goes through a similar moment of repentance and transformation, and his outlook in Siberia for the next ten years, working off his exile, suddenly looks less grim. In the adolescent, we get a similarly ambivalent ending, but in Demons and the Idiot especially, those are some real hardcore downer endings. And this brings us back to the thing that I started with, way back at the beginning of this book, where I emphasized that this is Dostoevsky's experiment in creating a hero. And this is not the first experiment of this kind. Both Prince Mishkin in The Idiot and Stavrogin in Demons were sort of prototypes 
for this heroic character that Dostoevsky was trying to work out. A hero in the, the line of um, Gogol's experiments or Victor Hugo's experiments, Dostoevsky too was trying to work out how to make his truly heroic figure. And notice that the last page of this book is all about Alyosha. That all of these boys are cheering him, shouting his name, repeating it over and over. And literally the last line of this book is, and eternally so, all our lives hand in hand, hurrah for Karamazov, Kolya cried once more ecstatically, and once more all the boys joined in his exclamation. Dostoevsky has found his hero. Alyosha is presented to us as an exemplar, as a person who has gone through all of the trials, overcome his own awfulness, repented of his crimes, and repented of his guilt before everyone, and ultimately come out to join people together and make their lives better, to act as an inspiration, to pass on to the next generation of peasants and nobles alike this faith in goodness and in being a decent human being. The memory that Alyosha has latched on here, that he has created here, that he has sort of set in the minds of each of these young men, is designed to protect them. Alyosha has taken this upon himself. It's what he's been doing this whole novel. He is protecting his brothers. He is protecting these children. He is protecting Katya and Grushenka. Everyone has latched on to him, and everyone believes in him. And we've... I started out this whole lecture series by saying we needed to ask the question, A, is Alyosha truly good? And that seems pretty obvious here. But B, is he believable? And that one I'm not sure I can answer. That really is going to be down to your own opinions. At the end of the day, you're going to have to decide for yourself if such a person as Alyosha can exist and if they're intoxicating goodness is in fact something believable. Because the fact of the matter is, again, as we've stressed, most people read this book and get really excited about Ivan, or they get really excited about you know the trial scene, or they think that Dostoevsky is in fact challenging all of these traditional ideas. Obviously, if that's been the, one of the dominant literary interpretations of this novel, then people clearly don't agree with me that Alyosha is in fact the hero or some sort of rich literary character or that Dostoevsky is devoting every fiber of his artistic integrity to making sure that Alyosha is presented strongly to us. But I have no doubt in my mind that that's what Dostoevsky is at least attempting. From the very fact that we start this book with a promise that Alyosha is a hero, if an unusual hero, down to the last line telling us that Alyosha has in fact achieved heroism, that in fact everyone is moved and inspired by his actions, that this is in fact a good man and a, the power of a good man. I have no doubt in my mind that Alyosha is intended to be persuasive and to be heroic. But again, I can't convince you of that. I'm not even sure Dostoevsky can. I suspect ultimately how you understand Alyosha and how you understand Alyosha's presence in this novel or in the career of Dostoevsky overall is going to very much depend on what you come to this novel carrying. You will see in it more mirrors than arguments. 
you will see more truths about characters, more persuasive observations, because that's what Dostoevsky is all about at the end of the day, carefully portraying the human condition, the human nature, the specific kinds of human beings that he runs into on a regular basis. He will try to make Alyosha believable, and he has presented Alyosha unusually as a character who he probably hasn't seen in real day-to-day -day life. That is an invention to some degree, but is it a believable one? Can someone's goodness be so straightforward and innocent as to cause everyone around them to become good themselves? I suspect the answer is yes. I'm not sure if I can point to very many good examples in my own life, though I have seen people have that effect, at least in moments. For it to be consistent, I don't know. I aspire to be that, but I'm not sure if I succeed. I hope to. And I suspect we all should hope to. But even if it isn't convincing, even at the end of the day, Alyosha does seem unreasonable, unlikely, impossible. I don't think it changes my opinion about whether or not we should be following that model. I am willing to 100% accept that Alyosha is good. The evidence there is overwhelming. I have no problem saying he is a role model for me. Even if it doesn't work. Even if it's not gonna happen. Even if the likes of Alyosha will not be found on this planet. And that's good enough, I think. Better hope than none. So with that, let's close the book. Let's put our Dostoevsky away and talk for a little bit about the future. So it's April. Uh, when I am recording this, obviously I don't know when you were listening to this, um, and this means that I am right at the edge of all of the papers coming in and all of the assignments to grade and all of the exams and so on and so forth. So I'm going to start by saying that I'm going to be on hiatus for basically the next month. Um, I always hate to do this, to just sort of like vanish off the face of the earth for a little while, but I'm glad that we got through this project before the grading started, and I've got a lot to do on Tuesdays in the future. Um, so, yep, I'm afraid I'm going AWOL for a little while. Um, so for the next month, probably no lectures of any kind. Um, once we come back at the end of May, I am hoping to knock out a few Patreon uh, requests, starting with a particular request from my wife, who gave me a topic that I'd like to discuss for a little while. I'm not going to tell you what it is, because I think it'll be more fun as a surprise. Um, so we're going to do a few one-off episodes towards the end of May and probably into the beginning of June. And then I have good news to report, namely that I finally have gotten the opportunity to teach ethics again since this whole COVID business started. I have been threatening for a long time that if, in fact, I got to teach ethics, I would be recording all of my ethics lectures. Uh, the time has come. I do, in fact, intend to teach ethics in the fall, and while I don't really, at this point, have to record any lectures, because, you know, it's kind of like all of my classes are going to be on campus again next fall, um, I'm going to do it anyway. So this summer, I intend to basically do a crazy schedule of lecture recording on my ethics class. 
Um, so I hope you are interested. I know it's one of my favorite classes to teach. I'm very eager to get back into the ethics swing of things. Um, I will probably end up recording the lectures at the same time as I'm building the website on professorkozlowski.wordpress.com, so feel free to check out what I'm doing there. Um, I'll be updating the Patreon on a regular basis about the ethics lectures as well. Um, so all that to say, ethics this summer, I hope you are looking forward to it. I know I am. Um, I am very excited at the prospect. But that's going to make for a busy summer, especially since there is some other stuff that I'm also kind of working on in the meantime that may or may not yield fruit, depending on the outcome of certain things that are outside of my control. Um, so suffice it to say, ethics this summer and possibly more announcements to come in the weeks ahead. Um, lastly, in the fall, we're hoping to do this again. Um, I don't know if I'm going to have the time so or time to do like a big novel like we did with Dostoevsky and do a whole 16 lecture series. Um, so I'm probably going to be picking a couple of less intensive topics. I'm still kicking around exactly what kind of books we might very well read. Probably something that will only take us like 10 weeks to do, so I can occasionally take a week off as necessary when the grading gets particularly bad this coming fall. Um, if you are interested in hearing about those topics and voting on what those topics might be, uh, that is the prerogative of my patrons, so I highly encourage you to go on my Patreon, um, sign up, and by all means contribute to this ongoing project. Um, the more money I'm making through Patreon, the more possible it is for me to, you know, do away with some of the lectures I teach for actual universities, and the more I can spend time, you know, doing my own research, preparing stuff that you want to listen to, and coming up with, like, whole classes and new ambitious assignments and new reading stuff or reading projects. Um, so yeah, if you join up, you can absolutely contribute whatever you want, but if you contribute $5 or more, you can definitely vote this summer when we decide on what reading project we're going to undertake in the fall. And if you contribute $10 or more, then you can absolutely pick your own topic for the next time I do a bunch of one-offs like I'm doing in May. Um, so please, get on my Patreon, go ahead and contribute. I would definitely appreciate it. It'll definitely help me to make more stuff like this in the future and, and keep this project going however long in the future we can. Um, but in the meantime, thank you just for listening to these and for making this possible, for contributing the idea of doing the Dostoevsky read-through in the first place. I've had a lot of fun doing it, if it isn't obvious, and I really hope that you've enjoyed it as well and learned more about Dostoevsky and about philosophy and about Russia in the 19th century and about my own personal predilections or, or truth or God or whatever it is that you're getting out of this. Um, in the meantime, sorry I'm not going to be there for the next four weeks, but stick around and we will have more quasi-academic discussions and uh, lectures in the future. Uh, whether or not that happens in the very near future, I am looking forward to what will hopefully be a long series of academic discourse and discussions of this nature. So, I'll see you soon.